Hello there, Peter Mansbridge here once again. You are just moments away from The Bridge. And it's Wednesday. That means Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Like you, I have been so grateful and so thankful for frontline workers during the COVID crisis. Let's just talk about the frontline workers at SickKids, which is one of the world's best children's hospitals. SickKids doctors also work behind the scenes on incredible breakthroughs to help our kids and generations to come. Listen to their inspiring stories in a new season of the popular podcast called Sick Kids Versus. Each episode explores a major Sick Kids discovery, like, well, a virus fighting super molecule or a cure for hard to treat cancers. Just visit sickkidsfoundation.com slash podcast or search Sick Kids Versus and spell versus VS. So Sick Kids VS. You'll be amazed at what you learn. Yes, the familiar Wednesday music for Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce is joining us from Ottawa. How are things on the back 40? Rainy, rainy, and kind of cold. But I'll tell you something, the crops are fighting back. They're fighters. They are gutting it out this spring. I don't know if you call it this spring, this pandemic spring. But I could, you know, I checked them out the other day, like two days ago, and they're still there. You didn't They're go yesterday? You're not going out there every day at like five in the morning as the sun comes up? No, there's uh there's uh You have your staff <laughs> out there. No, 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 no. When I see enough sun and rain, I know they are going to be okay for like a 24 But what about period. the rabbits? The rabbits will be there. They'll be chomping on your radishes. This is way out in the back 40, Peter. There's no rabbits out there. There's the <laughs> gophers, but we haven't seen any yet. So you're still confident that things are moving along as they should feeling great and the branding is really coming along i just can't wait to see you know with great branding and the beautiful beautiful crops that we're going to have just how much people are willing to pay and the money to a good cause for the um, for the produce well you better have a good packaging system because i i'm sure you're going to get requests from all over the country i mean people are already writing to me to ask me whether i can use my influence to get them a deal you know, a friends, yeah, you, uh, you no know, influence there. No friends, no. And, friends and family package rate. No, people just have to come direct. Asking you is just like automatic. No, no, it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk business. A um, couple of things I want to talk about today, and I want to start by talking about Nazi. I think that's how they pronounce it. NACI, yeah. the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Now, this thing was formed in 1964, right? It's got 14 members. They don't set policy, but they advise and they recommend and they do things like that. The odds are that most, if not all, of our listeners have never heard of this organization before. I'll be honest, I'd never heard of them before this year, before the pandemic. But they have come into uh, a certain <laughs> type of notoriety um, on some of the decisions or some of the advice they've been giving in the past year on the uh, on the pandemic, and that is their role. I mean, that's their job. They're there to advise, you know, the uh, public health organizations that make the decisions and do set the policy. 
Um, and that advice can either be accepted or rejected. But it's there. And at a time of public safety, you want as much advice as you can get. The problem is, in the last few days, it's actually been more than the last few days. It's been the last couple of months. Every once in a while, something they say seems to step out of line with with stuff that's being said by other organizations and by government policy and by the recommendations of uh, a variety of different organizations within government and departments. And that's okay. That's kind of their role. But some of them are kind of, you know, have set people back. And the latest one is this decision by a number of the senior members, including the chair of the committee, to kind of ad-lib their way through a discussion on AstraZeneca, a vaccine that almost 2 million Canadians have taken already, where there have been, I think, six cases of blood clots, six out of almost 2 million, all right? That's serious, obviously, in terms of uh, a potential side effect. Blood clot is serious. But let's face it, more people have had problems as a result of you know, driving 100 kilometers from their home than have, and I mean serious problems in that drive, than those who've had serious problems from AstraZeneca. So the question for one of these officials from NACI, the chair, in fact, was, "What? how do you feel about that? You know, should be people taking AstraZeneca or not? And her answer was, Hey, if you have, basically, if you have a choice of, you know, Pfizer or Moderna, that's probably the one you should take. You know, unless you're in a deep hot zone and you got to have something fast. Well, this is after almost 2 million people have had AstraZeneca, including for, you know, (laughs) the sake of being up front, both you and I have had AstraZeneca. So it set a lot of people became very worried about this. Did they take something that could cause some serious health risks? What are they going to do for a second dose? Do they have to take AstraZeneca again? Should they start all over again? I mean, there's been a parade of questions. Meanwhile, the official policy is there's nothing wrong with AstraZeneca, and you should be taking whatever vaccine you can get your hands on. If you're offered a vaccine, take it. It doesn't matter where, which one it is. If it's accepted... Uh, by the regulatory agencies in Canada, and the four of them have been in Canada, then take it. So talk about a messaging disaster. This seems to be one. And it's really thrown yet another curveball of this whole issue of vaccine hesitancy. So where are you on this, my friend? Well, I think there are a number of things that that occurred to me, Peter. One is that the role of a committee like this needs to be understood. And when that, it has a very specific role, kind of narrow in a sense, which is to provide a perspective on the safety of vaccines. The government, on the other hand, has to worry about the safety of vaccines, be preoccupied with that. But they also have to think about um, the overall health of the country the health of the economy, the mental health 
of the country? When are we going to be able to get out of this situation? How are, how are we going to be able to convince people keep on doing the things that are necessary to do to get to the finish line of this pandemic? And so vaccine safety is one aspect of that. And I'm not suggesting it's less important than economics or anything else, but it, it isn't the same. So when Nazi uh, individuals decide that they're going to do interviews with media organizations, it ends up for the viewer, for the audience, sounding like, well, this is the view of the government. And it's become kind of confused on the whole question of vaccine safety. And that's not really what's going on. What's going on is somebody who's um, got some expertise in vaccines is asked a kind of a personal question or offers a personal opinion, which they shouldn't do. There's no question that the real problem here is that, in my view, is that the public is so attentive to this question of vaccine safety, and understandably so. And their first question is, how do we know that these are safe? These vaccines have been developed in such a short period of time. Can we really trust that they're safe? So anything that raises doubts about the safety, that sounds like it's coming from somebody who's an expert, an official with responsibility for advice in this area, immediately shakes the already kind of vulnerable level of vaccine confidence that we have in Canada. And so I thought it was really unhelpful. Um, I feel a little bit sorry for the individuals uh, or individual who is kind of doing this interview because I don't think it's their, it's not their day job. And they probably didn't quite completely understand that everything that they say is going to be interpreted through the lens of if I can avoid a risk, maybe I should as opposed to what's the best thing for the country and what is the predominance of evidence about the safety for individuals. I was looking at the UK numbers this morning because, as you know, Peter, they uh, it's been so widely used in the UK. 22 million doses have been administered in the UK. Of there AstraZeneca. Been, of AstraZeneca. Because yeah. it's, it's a British vaccine, right. Used to call it Oxford AstraZeneca, and uh, somehow Oxford keeps getting left off the name now. Leave that to another day. But forty deaths, um, and I don't mean to minimize those deaths, except to say that's forty deaths from clotting out of twenty-two million people that have taken the dose. The number of COVID cases in the UK is a little over four million, and there were one hundred twenty-eight thousand deaths. So I guess, in effect, what I'm saying is NASI doesn't really opine as clearly as it might on the overall value to society of people getting that first shot that's available to them. And when they offer opinions about, well, what would I do if my sister asked me, those opinions sound like they're questioning the safety, uh, even if that wasn't their intent. And so it's it's been quite a schmozzle. And I think right now, our latest data, I'll just finish on this point, is that there are two vaccines for which 80% of Canadians are confident, the Pfizer and the Moderna. And there are two which are struggling to get to 50% confidence. And so we have um, more Pfizer doses coming in the next little while, and I think some more Moderna right now. But we're going to need to manage this AstraZeneca question better uh, going forward, no doubt about it. And, you know, one of the one of the reasons we're going to have to manage it better 
is simply that there's there's a crunch on AstraZeneca supply, and you've got a couple of million people sitting on the edge waiting for their second dose with the assumption that it has to be AstraZeneca. Now, that may change because there are, there are studies going on in, in Britain as to whether you can mix your the dosages. And there's a sense on the part of those who are close to this in terms of uh, on the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, side doctors that uh, we've talked to. And Isaac Bogach was telling us earlier this week, his sense is that it's going to be okay to mix the doses. Um, but that decision hasn't been made yet. Uh, but if it's if it's if the decision is no, you've got to stick with whatever brand you had your first dose. That's going to be a problem for a lot of people in Canada who are on AstraZeneca and where the supply has crunched for a number of different reasons. The India situation um, being part of it because that's where most of them are actually made. It may have been developed in Britain, but the the Serum Institute in India is the big maker of the uh, of this particular vaccine. They clearly need need it themselves right now. Um, so there's that question. The other question, you know, I, I, I'm kind of wondering whether you're being uh, <laughs> critical enough. I, I, I mean, this has been damaging, right? It's more than just a kind of a hiccup in the process. This event this week has really been damaging, especially as as you point out, as as the Abacus data is showing around, you know, less than fifty percent confidence in AstraZeneca. That's a terrible number, and it's yeah. not it's not going to improve as a result of this week. No, it definitely won't. It's uh, so it's damaging. Uh, I suppose that you know maybe a little bit. What I'm trying to do, Peter, is. Um, is reflect on the fact that, well, a couple of things. One is that that everybody who's working to try to protect public health, to make the right decisions in this space during this really unprecedented time, I operate on the basis that all of them are trying their level best to do the very best job they can. And that their lives are uh, not particularly enjoyable, probably massively stressful. Um, they're going to be human. They're going to make mistakes. If the mistakes are communications mistakes, kind of it's easy for people in my business over the years to, uh, and maybe a little bit in yours, uh, to kind of say that's a disaster because somebody miscommunicated. And it's not good, but it also is a thing that we should be able to get over. And I guess... I'm trying, at least at this stage in the pandemic, to be a little bit less quick to pounce on uh, politicians or others uh, who I don't think are having a great day in managing this because I kind of understand the human dimension. And that's true whether I'm talking about Jason Kenney or Doug Ford or, or people in the Trudeau government. I'm just trying to be a little bit more careful about that. Uh, but it's, you know, it is unhelpful. And it, this is a voyage of discovery. I kind of feel like we may be able to get to herd immunity uh, even without a recovery in confidence of the AstraZeneca vaccine. I hope so. There's no question that a lot of people will continue to say, I'll take the AstraZeneca if that's what's available to me. Uh, so it won't be everybody that shies away from it. But, uh, you know, we didn't need this to happen for sure. Um, it, it was a setback. 
and uh, evidence of a certain degree of naivety, you know, on, on the part of, uh, of the speaker. And, you know, in fairness, it wasn't just the chair of uh, Nazi. Um, the health minister, you know, didn't really sort of take a position on it, said, check with your doctor, which, you know, has a certain value. But really, at this time, at this moment, it seems like it needs a a declarative statement on the part of somebody of authority on this. You know, you're either you're in or you're out on AstraZeneca. I mean, the prime minister had his vaccine last week. It was, I believe it was AstraZeneca. Yeah. And and that kind of thing, you know, one assumes would, would put confidence out there on the part of a lot of people who are trying to make a decision. Well, if it's okay for the prime minister, I may like him, I may dislike him, but he is the prime minister. And he took it, obviously, on the advice of his medical experts, so it's got to be okay. Um, yeah, I, I think the health minister said something that was, it sounded to me from what I heard more like check with your local health authorities. Um, and to some degree, that's a rational response because the local health authorities um, make the decision about what you're going to get. Um, but I take your point, and th- th- definitely yesterday, through the course of the day, the government sort of regrouped and said, the first vaccine's available to you, that's the one you should take. They're all tested, they're all safe, they're all effective. Um, we've approved them all, and you should feel confident in them. And I think that's the right place for the government to be. You know, on your point on herd immunity, I, I, I was watching an interview yesterday with um, Tony Fauci uh, in the U.S., and he was, you know... After listening to all the stuff about herd immunity in the last few days and the the Americans are having their own problems on communication strategy because somebody put out they're never going to reach herd immunity, Um, you know, one of the respected doctors. And so that sent a flurry around as to, you know, they're never going to achieve herd immunity, so this is never going to go away. We're going to have it with us forever. And um, to a degree, that's right. It is going to sort of be there forever, and that's why you're, the odds are you're going to be taking vaccines every year for, um, you know, off into the future. Um, but Fauci said, look, you know, you got to be careful the way you toss this phrase around herd immunity. He said, everybody's assuming we need to get to 70% of people either either have had COVID and now have antibodies or they have had all the vaccines needed. And the assumption is 70%. Well, that's based on nothing, said Fauci. We have no idea what herd immunity percentage is on uh, COVID. And it may be years before we know what it is. It took us a long time before we we figured out what herd immunity was for measles. And every one of these um, diseases, viruses, parasites has different percentages in terms of herd immunity. So, so we don't know. It may be much lower than 70. It may be higher. I'm glad I didn't hear that interview. <laughs> Pardon me? <laughs> I'm glad I didn't hear that interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they, well, we're all fixated on, there's got to be some finish line here. And yeah, well, he believes, whether he we still call it herd immunity line. or we call it, uh, it's sufficiently safe that your life can resume. Uh, it'll be quite disquieting if, a lot of public officials start moving into the, there's no telling what will happen. And I say that not to be in favor of obfuscation, but 
I just think that that social order and mental health depend on people believing at this point in time that there is going to be a finish line. Right. And it won't be maybe 10 years in the future, but it's probably within months. Yeah. And, and, and he believes that. And he believes that it's within months and it will certainly be by this fall. I mean, he's assuming things are going to be relatively back to normal in his country by this by this fall. Um, I think all he was saying is don't put all your eggs in the herd immunity basket to make the determination of when that may be. There are other factors at play here as well. And we just don't know enough about herd immunity now to be using it as the big factor. Um, anyway, I, you know, I thought that was yeah. interesting, but it also plays onto the fears that some people is that, that this stuff, the science on this is changing all the time. And that, you know, that's kind of understandable dealing with a virus that nobody even knew existed a year ago or, you know, a year and a half ago. And they're continually updating their, you know, their, their decisions about how this is unfolding. Um, and you know, what, what works and what doesn't work. So there's a degree of truth in that, but there's also this fear that, oh, wow, do they really kind of really know what's going on? We're having a real personality test collectively about science, right? We're, uh, you know, we spend half our time, more than half our time celebrating that science could do this in such a short period of time. And then when science continues to do its thing and finds out some more, information uh we're horrified by that or or frightened by it or fearful of it or frustrated with it or annoyed with science and uh our relationship with science has never been i think in my lifetime anyway so fraught with highs and lows uh, because we want the science to keep on pushing us in a positive direction we want it not to question itself we want it to linear and drive towards that optimistic outcome but you know rationally we know it doesn't work that way and we're struggling with that okay enough on all that let's move to a different topic one that we haven't talked about for some time now but one that we always enjoy talking about it's one of my favorites one of your favorites one of my favorites we're gonna do a little trumpy stuff right after this you still trying to find ways to get into the world of crypto? Well, look no further. BitBuy is Canada's number one platform for buying and selling Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. BitBuy has launched a brand new app and website with a new look, lower fees, and new coins. BitBuy is your one-stop shop to get involved and super easy to use for beginners. Visit bitbuy.ca or download the BitBuy app. Enter referral code PODCAST20 to get $20 free when you make your first deposit. So I remember uh, about the time of the transition as Joe Biden um, was inaugurated in the United States and took over the presidency and the former guy was stuck, you know, in Mar-a-Lago whining and moaning about various things. And some of us thought he would kind of disappear into the woodwork and the, some of us was me. And I, I still have some belief that that will eventually happen, but it sure hasn't happened on the timetable I thought it would. Um and others like you were very, you know, you kept warning us that the Republicans are running the risk here of blown up. 
and the U.S. system turning into a three-party as opposed to a two-party state. And I thought, oh, you know, Anderson, what the hell does he know? He hasn't been around long enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, he's just a radish farmer from rural Quebec. Somewhere. What does he know yeah. about anything? And meanwhile, day after day, week after week, that looks exactly what's happening. And the latest evidence being the way they're treating Liz Cheney, who's a, like the third-ranking member of the Republican Party. And they're going to run her out of town in Washington. Why? Because she calls Trump a liar and a proponent of the big lie. And there's, I think there's a fair amount to say about this. And I certainly have some thoughts that I'd like to share. But you are the man of the hour on this. Because I don't know whether it's going to happen the three-party formation, but it looks it looks entirely possible because she's not going to go quietly. You can assume that. So away you go. Well, this is why the bridge pays me the big bucks is to bring kind of predictive insight like that. I and, wanted to uh, talk to you about the you. big bucks part of all. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> Look, I think, Peter, that, that it's still unclear whether a, a regular – rather than a nutty Republican Party will emerge. The nutty Republican Party is there. It has the name, it has the brand, um, and it is owned and operated by Donald Trump. And he's um, got some sort of hold, even as his uh, lawyer uh, had his house raided and there's continuing stories swirling about how big a legal risk Trump is in. He's got this hold over this party and the hold that he's got has a lot to do. And we talked about this before with the role of media and how it's changed over time so that you have Fox news basically being the conduit between Republican leadership and the rabid Republican base. And there is no similar conduit for the regular, less rabid Republican base. There's no channel for them. Um, People don't use network news as that kind of melting pot that takes some of the edges off the the shock uh, way of presenting political news these days. If you watch MSNBC or Fox News now, what you're really getting is a polarization of news coverage about politics that mirrors the polarization that happens in the most active parts of the base of these two parties. And what's missing is the stuff that used to sit in the center, the journalism that had guardrails around it that said, you know what, we're not going to, we're not going to pitch our stories at the most angry, rabid people. And we're not in pitching them in that direction, also going to shade the facts or ignore relevant facts and put an emphasis on things that aren't facts in some cases. So I'm not blaming journalism. Well, yes, I guess I am uh, as part of the problem, but I don't know how the Republican Party solves this problem right now. Because if you're Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney and people who feel like they do, which is that, well, this party used to be about something other than this kind of weird cultish, celebrity-worshipping thing, how do we get that back? I'm not sure it's easy. If you think about fundraising, 
I did feel that the corporate donors were going to draw a hard line and say, no more Trump. And uh, if it's no more Trump, we'll give to the Republican Party again. But they didn't draw that line. The money seems to be flowing now. And certainly all of the candidates appear to feel that if they're going to raise money in the future, they're going to do it by sidling up to Trump. So in the absence of a media vehicle that rallies support for a champion for a regular Republican Party, in the absence of a hard line by the financial underpinnings of the party, I don't know if that third party or second party, depending on what you consider to be the the, the regular Republican version, I don't know if it can come to fruition, but I know in effect, there seems to be two Republican parties now, the Trump party and the, what the hell, what, why would we follow Trump party? And uh, it's a fight that's worth having and I hope it works out well, but right now it, it looks like Liz Cheney's gonna get bounced. It looks like nobody's listening to Mitt Romney, except when they do listen to him, they boo him. And uh, it's a real problem for American democracy and by extension for, for everybody else. Yeah, well, I wanna get to that point in a second. I'm just going to make, you know, I watched um, Michael Steele, who's the former chair or president of the Republican Party in the United States. And, uh, you know, I've watched him for years. You know, uh, he ran for president at one point. He was one of the ones who got squashed by Trump in, uh, in you know, early in the 2016 campaign. Um, but he's, you know, he's had it with Trump and he's kind of left. Uh, uh, this morning I saw him on television. And he compared the current situation to uh, a house where there are hostages being held. And I, I thought it was a very interesting way he put it. Um, he said, if you assume the Republican Party is that house and Donald Trump is in charge and he's got all these hostages inside who are the members of Congress and Senate and so on and so forth, they're being held hostage by him. And in this one person, Liz Cheney, and I guess with George Romney at her side, or uh, not George Romney, but uh, Mitt Romney, um, showing my age there, uh, Liz Cheney finds a way out of the house, finds a door that hadn't been locked, opens the door, and there's freedom for her outside that house. She turns around and looks at all her colleagues and says, come on. This is the way out. And they're going, eh, I don't know. I don't think so. It's a, like, it's okay in here. I'm going to stay in here. And there she is left as the only one out there. And I thought that's a really interesting way of describing it because, boy, they're held hostage right now. And they're the classic uh, ones who who you know, privately will say, oh, no, no, I can't stand Trump anymore. He's killing the party. Yet when it gets to the crunch, they're there for him by not moving. Now, the other yeah. thing that I saw today, and it strikes to your the heart of your question about democracy, uh, is uh, Tom Friedman's piece today in the New York Times. I don't know whether you saw it. But it's, you know, t Tom Friedman, guy I've followed for years, especially on his stuff in, um, in the Middle East when he was living in the Middle East. Um, but the title on his column today, so you can imagine what the column is like, is Trump's big lie, and the big lie, of course, is about 
the election results and uh, his his big lie that Biden stole the election. Anyway, the headline is Trump's big lie has devoured the GOP. Now it's eyeing our democracy. And I thought, I looked at that for a long time and I, I saw his argument, but it, it's eyeing our democracy. That's a big statement. That's a big prediction. And it kind of dovetails with what you were just suggesting a moment ago. Do you think that's really possible? I think the big lie is a symptom of the problem that's eating democracy. I don't think the big lie about the 2020 election being stolen will survive that much longer um, as a political force. But just as Trump is a symptom of the problem in American democracy, when Trump is gone, the risk is there will be another Trump, that the search will be for somebody who is more like him than more the opposite of him. And that's because of a number of factors that, that I'm thinking of anyway. One is um, somewhere along the way, the currency of fame became more important than ideas or intellect or courage. Um, the idea of celebrity became uh, better than leadership skills. If you are a celebrity, if you have fame, you have access to the ability to change the conversation in an instant. You have the ability with a platform of 49 million followers or whatever it was when they shut him down finally on Twitter to call out um, people that you disagree with and ruin them. Um, and when I was talking about no more guardrails, this is kind of the, the dilemma that I'm focused on because somewhere along the way, and I don't think it's happened in Canada. In fact, I think we have kind of the opposite instinct about celebrity sometime, which is that we, we kind of like our celebrities, but we want them to be humble. We don't want them to think that they're important just because they're celebrated or they're famous. We want them to recognize that we, you know, we think they're kind of like us. Whereas in, in America, I think there is this idea that even though Trump was a garbage businessman, just a garbage businessman, failed and bankrupted, um, a horrible human being by all accounts. His relationships with other people are a mess. You can't really find people who say, well, yes, all my life I've known him and he's always been a fantastic human being. You hear quite the opposite. Um, he sues everybody. Uh, he's got, there's nothing to commend him as an individual or a political leader except fame. And should fame really be that thing? But I kind of look at what's happened to the Republican Party, and they make people like Sean Hannity famous and Tucker Carlson famous, and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity make Donald Trump more famous. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's almost a, well, it's a destructive little game uh, where the people who are kind of winning at it uh, keep on propelling it forward. The thing that I read this morning, Peter, I, I will read Friedman's piece. Um, I read Tom Nichols' 
uh, piece uh, from the Atlantic. I'm not sure if he wrote it just now or he was kind of re-upping it. But he wrote how in his mind, this is a longtime Republican, that today's Republican Party was reminding him of the last of the Soviet uh, governments. You know, he talked about how that party had become so kind of corrupted by its own instincts. Uh, Leonid Brezhnev and the kind of the extinguishing of creative thought or energy or, or, or a kind of a positive role in society of that version of the Communist Party. And he said that if you look at the Republican Party, you see a lot of that, the cult of the leader is the leader and whatever they say is the thing that matters to me. Um, and so there are precedents for this. Uh, I'm sure the Republicans would hate that the most prominent precedent is the Soviet Union uh, Communist Party. But uh, we should all be concerned about it. Um, and it's there are one last point. You raised the issue of the big lie. There is a problem in society that we see where people believe things that aren't true and they believe them because they know other people who believe them. They sit on websites where other people talk about things that aren't true. Um, um, let me just rewind you for a bit on the fame issue because you know I, I agree with you in what you were saying, but I find it interesting because in if you look at the situation politically in Canada, does it hasn't unfolded that way, right? I mean, if you look at fame or celebrity in terms of political leaders, um, you you can look at the Liberal Party, especially, you know, in the in in its last few leaders. Justin Trudeau was, you know, he was a celebrity politician when he ran for leader, and Michael. Ignatiev wasn't a celebrity politician, but he was kind of a celebrity, or they thought he was a celebrity because of his, you know, a, 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 the books he'd written, the films and documentaries he'd been involved with, and the international stature that he had. Um, you can't say that about the conservatives. I mean, there was no fan club for, <laughs> for Aaron O'Toole or Andrew Scheer or even Stephen Harper. And yet they all achieved, you know, victory in terms of leadership. And uh, in Harper's case, obviously, you know, he uh, he won a number of elections. Uh, not so for the other two, uh, at least not yet. Um, so it's an interesting comparison uh, between, yeah. the, between those two. Not the kind of fame or celebrity that Trump had, which is based on, I totally agree with you, based on a failed career that nobody seemed to, there were enough warnings that he had a failed career, the bankruptcies, the the stiffing of everybody who'd ever worked for him, uh, and and basically no loyalty to anybody except himself and his family. Um, but anyway. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think we favor the, um, you know, some people believe that the most, well, maybe the most famous recent uh, communications packaging choice that was made was to put John Kretschmann in a denim shirt. Um, and it's sort of emblematic of the, he was not a, you know, he was not a person from the manor born or to the manor born. He was not somebody who came from a background of uh, fame and wealth or anything like that. But still, 
because he'd been in politics for a period of time, the instinct is we need to make him seem more humble, more regular, more like you. And uh, I, I, I note that in People magazine, I've looked at it a few times in the past, and there is, a, I think, a little section in it called Celebrities, They're Just Like Us, but it's literally like one page in the whole magazine, and the rest of the magazine is they're not like us at all. <laughs> and I think the Canadian version of that would be reversed. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. Okay, um, the clock says we've wrapped her up for this day. Um, Bruce will be back tomorrow uh, for our good talk session with Chantelle Bear. That's at 5 o'clock Eastern time in the afternoon on um, XM Canada Talks Channel 167. Uh, the bridge will be back, obviously, the, tomorrow at its uh, regular times and regular availability both through uh, Sirius XM Canada and also through um, your podcast, wherever you get them. All right, good discussion, sir. I'll let you get back to... Um, your hard work out there. Ending the crops. All right, Peter, great to talk to you. Talk to you tomorrow. You got it. And thanks for listening, everybody. See you again and uh, talk to you again. And well, starters in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.